It's great to worship the Lord together tonight and uh, to come to the book of Obadiah. We were talking over lunch today and, and discussing it. And I said, you know, Obadiah is the, the shortest of all the prophetic books. And I asked the, the table, uh, the two ladies in my life, uh, do you know what that means? And they said, does that mean it's going to be a short sermon? And I said, well, it should mean that because we're not trying to cover the whole book of Isaiah. Just, just one chapter, we would say, of the book of Obadiah. And it's good to open God's Word together with you again. I've been looking forward to this. I say to my students at HBU, you don't want to get to heaven and have Mr. Obadiah walk up to you and say, did you ever read my book? And say, no, I never did. So tonight, we'll read it together and you'll understand it better, I hope. Let's pray together. Father, I know you have a word for us in your word. And whatever that word is tonight, God, however your Holy Spirit chooses to apply these 21 verses to our lives, Lord, our answer to you is yes. Because we want what you want, and our hearts cry out with Laverne's song tonight, we want to know you. Father, like the Apostle Paul, we want to know you in the fellowship of sharing in your sufferings, in the power of your resurrection. We want to know you. God, grant that in these moments we have together, we shall come to know you better. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So who rejoices in the suffering of others? We just know at face value that that's wrong. That it's wrong when we see somebody else suffering in some way to, to quietly or, or sometimes loudly uh, take advantage of that idea. I had never heard of Cappy Poindexter until this week. Apparently, she's a basketball player with the New York Liberty. And... Um, she apologized this week for tweeting over the weekend that Japan was to blame for the devastation of last week's earthquake and tsunami on its northern coast. And then at one point she used a derogatory term to uh, describe the Japanese people. And at another point she tweeted, what if God was tired of the way they treated their own people in their own country? God makes no mistakes, she said. She continued the incriminating tweet, you just never know, they did Pearl Harbor, so you... You can expect, uh, can you expect anything less? How do you feel when other people suffer? Do you ever, when you hear of somebody else's misfortune, breathe silently a sigh of relief and say, I'm glad that wasn't me. I read years ago about a lady who came upon an accident where a child had been riding a bicycle and was hit by a car. And when, um, when she ran to the spot, others were crowding around and she couldn't see who was there and she ran to the center of the circle and parted the waters of the people and looked down and she said, oh thank God, it's not my child. And there was this child lying there wounded and hurting. If you, like me, find those things beyond aggravating but, uh, but wrong in, in every sense of the word, then you understand some of the indignation of the prophet Obadiah when he saw the way the people of Edom, the cousins of the Israelites, if you will, the Edomites, the way they responded when the Babylonians came marching in 
and desecrated the sanctuary in Jerusalem. And the people of Edom rejoiced in the suffering of Israel. And Obadiah has a word for them and also for us. Would you open your Bibles with me to Obadiah? I'm going to read verses 1 through 14 here at the beginning. We'll pick up the last eight verses a little bit later. Let's stand together as we read God's word. Obadiah, the word of the Lord. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We've heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise and let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, O Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Thank you. You may be seated. Wedged between Amos and Jonah is the shortest of the books among the prophets, and it is um, written by a, a prophet named Obadiah. Obadiah means servant of the Lord. It can be a sort of generic. A person could be an Obadiah. In a way, I hope that all of us are Obadiahs tonight, that we are servants of the Lord. The only person we know by the name of Obadiah in the Scripture is actually found in one of the Elijah narratives in the book of First Kings chapters 17 and 18. Remember, there's this, great, there's this great drought that's caused by the prayer and there's been no rain and, and there's this wicked king and this wicked king is uh, against the people of Israel and everybody's looking for Elijah because they want to bring judgment on him. And Elijah walks up to the, the, the servant of the king whose name is Obadiah and says, okay, turn me into the king. And uh, the servant says, oh no, you're not going to trick me. If I say you're here, you're going to be transported somewhere else. I know how God works in your life. And by the way, I'm a good guy. Why do you want the king to kill me, says Obadiah. And um, 
Elijah says, well, I don't want the king to kill you. And by the way, I'll do what I'll, I, I say I'm doing. I won't mistreat you in that way. And Obadiah says, but remember that I was the one who hid the 100 prophets of the Lord in two caves. And I brought them food and water. This is an Obadiah that we know in Scripture. But he's not the same Obadiah. That Obadiah was earlier in the history of Israel. This Obadiah comes after a period of time, we believe, when Israel has gone into captivity. And Obadiah, the servant of the Lord, had a front row seat. And what he saw was not only that the Babylonians came and conquered the people of God, but those who were distant relatives of the Israelites, the Edomites, they stood by and watched. And they even marched into the city. And they stood in the temple after it had been desecrated by the Babylonians And they got drunk together. And these Edomites rejoiced in the misfortune of the Israelites and breathed a sort of sigh of relief because they had been afraid that these powerful Babylonians were also going to conquer them. And they breathed a sigh of relief because they were not mistreated on that day. Edom is the place where the descendants of Esau lived. So you'll see in the book of Obadiah that Obadiah uses the word Edom and Esau interchangeably. Remember, if you go back to the book of Genesis, almost all of these peoples are related to each other in some way. Descendants of Abraham, descendants of Ishmael, descendants of Isaac, or descendants of Lot. Well, these Edomites are the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. Remember Esau is the older brother. Remember his name means red. He was sort of a, a hairy fellow. Um, he was red, a reddish complexion. And uh, he was um, unkind uh, to his brother. He was foolish in, in selling his birthright. He was uh, foolish in, in, uh, in not realizing his brother was stealing his blessing. And Jacob doesn't turn out to be such a nice guy either. But the descendants of Esau came to live in Edom. And if you look closely at the story of when Jacob comes home, what you discover is that his brother has done very well. The list of his descendants, the list of the nation or the land that has become his people's land says that Esau was one of the greatest leaders of his time. And his descendants developed their own nation. And those of you who were with us the last time we went to Israel and we went down into Petra, which is in present-day Jordan, and we saw those cliffs there. Or if you weren't there, if you've ever seen that movie I mentioned this morning, The uh, Last Crusade, and remember Indiana Jones, you're looking at me blankly, but Indiana Jones rides down on the horse, down through the cliffs there, and there's this narrow, what the Arabs call a seek. It's a sort of narrow passageway or pass through the mountains. And we went down there and we rode in. And just like in the movie, there's this magnificent palace that's carved out of the sandstone. And I was riding my Indiana Jones horse with my Indiana Jones hat. And, well, this boy was leading the horse with a rope. But anyway, I went down into that area there. And you see the exact same. It's carved out of sandstone. Even the cliffs are red. Even the soil in that area and these cliffs. And, the, and these descendants of Esau lived in this magnificent area and they believed that they were invincible. That their little narrow passageways were impenetrable. That they could stand on the tops of the mountains and destroy their enemies from above. They felt like they were, they were um, invincible. And this is the group of people who when Israel is finally conquered by Babylon, they rejoice and 
They were so arrogant and proud that they judged the Israelites and rejoiced in Israel's disgrace. But Obadiah calls them to account. Now, who's the most famous descendant of Esau in the New Testament? Anybody know? The Idumeans are the Edomites in New Testament times. And they had one of their sons who became the king. King Herod, we call him, and all of his descendants. And in some ways, he is a representative of these Edomites in the way that he takes advantage of the Israelites when they are at their weakest as a puppet king of the Romans. Too often, even in this day, God's people rejoice in the burdens of others. And I want to come tonight from the book of Obadiah to say to you, you don't want to be like those shallow people who when other people are doing poorly feel good about it. You don't get any higher by stepping on other people or by rejoicing in their difficulties As recipients of God's grace, Obadiah reminds us we must be gracious because our sovereign Lord is King. Everybody, and I mean everybody, answers to Him. So if somebody is treating you unfairly, they will have to give an account to God for that. And here's the other side of that coin. If we are treating somebody unfairly, we will give an account to God for that. We all answer to Him. So what does Obadiah tell us? First of all, this immutable principle that God humbles the proud. On the day of Israel's judgment, the Edomites were guilty of pride and presumption. Notice just with me in verse 1 that Obadiah has a vision. It's an audible vision. This is what God says. God says, much as I said from Isaiah chapter 59 this morning, God says, okay, it's time for me to go into battle. And I'm going to battle against the Edomites. And I'm going to make them very small among the nations because they have gotten so large in their own eyes. I will reduce them to a manageable size. I will make you small and despised. Mark Devers, looking at the book of Obadiah, asks an interesting question. He asked the question, does God have any enemies Because you get the feeling from the book of Obadiah that if you're an enemy of the people of God, you are God's enemy. And what I learned from the book of Obadiah is of all the enemies in the world that you want to have, God is the last one that you want to have. And when God says to Edom, if you treat my people this way, I'm going to bring judgment on you. What he is saying is, I will hold you to account. Samuel Huntingdon said, it is human to hate, but does God hate? Does God have any enemies in this world? Notice what we learn about these Edomites. God points out that our pride will inevitably deceive us. Look at verses 3 and 4 when it says, The pride, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks. Where does pride reside? In the heart. The Edomites were self-deceived by their own topography. They were situated like Switzerland in an apparently impenetrable region of rocky heights and passes. They felt invincible. Their fortresses were impregnable like that massive, massive treasury that's carved in the sandstone there at Petra that we saw. Listen to their pride. Who can bring me down to the ground? But God says, even if you were an eagle who soared to the heights of the stars... I could bring you down. I will bring you down. Moses Hogan has reworked the old spiritual 
that says, my God is so high, you can't get over Him. He's so low, you can't get under Him. Nobody ever deceives God. And by the way, nobody is really invincible. Even when we are doing our best and we feel like, well, I'm really, I'm really, there's nothing bad can happen to me now. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul says, let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Any one of us could make a mistake, especially if we choose the way of pride back during um, the 1920s, late 20s and 1930s after World War I when there was so much um, unrest and fear in Germany. I'm reading the new biography of Bonhoeffer and in it it talks about how, how the results of World War I and the reparations that were demanded almost precipitated World War II in some ways over in Europe. And particularly the French were concerned about the Germans. And so what they did so that they would never be conquered again was to build what was called the Maginot Line. It was named for their um, minister of war, um, Andre Maginot. And what they did was they built this series of underground bunkers out of heavy concrete with really big guns. It was air-conditioned, for heaven's sake. There were recreation areas there. There was an underground railroad to supply the troops. And because this Maginot Line had been built, the French knew that the Germans would never conquer them again. But when Adolf Hitler rose to power and he decided to conquer France, he didn't go through the Maginot Line He outflanked them, went around and came through Belgium. And the Maginot Line sat there empty while the Germans came marching in. But the whole time when the the Nazis were building up their power, the French were not afraid because they said, nothing bad can ever happen to us. Can I ask you tonight, what is your Maginot Line? What is it that makes you think you're invincible? Is it something about your accomplishments or your achievements or your appearance or or your strengths? What is it about you that makes you think that you cannot be ever defeated? Beware of pride. Beware of presumption. Why? Because in verses 5 to 14, God promises judgment on the presumptuous. He says, look, if thieves and robbers came to your house... They leave something behind. The thieves and robbers who came to our house left a lot behind because our neighbor had the courage to go up and write down their license plate number. Forty minutes from the time they were on the front porch, they were captured back at their apartment. But not until they had disposed of the one laptop that we really wish we had kept and that they had not gotten away with. But the truth is, he says, even robbers will leave something. If somebody were picking a vineyard, they'd leave a few grapes. But he says, eat them. When your enemies come marching in, it will be total devastation. Because you've rejoiced in the weakness and the hurt of another, you will answer and there will be nothing left. It will all be swept away. It will all be taken away because you rejoiced in the suffering of another. The Germans have a word for it, schadenfreude. That is rejoicing in the the misfortune of others. Notice what he says to them in verse 10. He calls it violence against Jacob. Now Jacob represents Israel, of course, and when he says Esau, it represents Edom. And he says, your nation was violent against Israel. And they might have taken exception. How were they violent? He says, when you were aloof and you did nothing. What did Martin Luther King Jr. say? The only thing that evil needs to prevail is for the good people to do nothing. 
And the Edomites did nothing when the Babylonians came marching in. They were aloof. They didn't help. One of my good friends, who's a member of our church, he's, uh, he played football for TCU. He was, uh, he was a, a tight end for them back in the day. They used to beat my Baylor Bears with some regularity when he played for them. And uh, he's from this area. He uh, went to high school at Westchester. And uh, he was a tremendous athlete. And he still is. He's a triathlete, and we jog together sometimes. And and uh, he was riding his bike this week on spring break. He's a principal of a, of a high school up in the Cypher area. And he's riding his bike along, and this guy pulls right out in front of him with the truck. And he shouts because there's no way he can stop. You know, he's 220 pounds going 25 miles per hour in a bicycle headed straight for a truck. The man stops. He swerves. He gets around him, runs into a curb, literally breaks his neck. He hits the ground. It breaks a couple of vertebrae in his neck. They're deciding this week, pray for him. His name's Bill Tomini, whether they're going to put a halo on him or not. Right now, if you saw him this morning, he was wearing, some of you were talking with me with him after church this morning. He's wearing a neck brace. But here's what he said. The man in the pickup, after he hit the ground at 25 miles per hour and did a face plant and broke his neck, the man in the truck just drove away. And he said, I couldn't believe it. But then he said, but there were some good Samaritans in the neighborhood. And they came and attended to me and helped me and cared for me and called 911 so that I was cared for. All around us are people who are suffering. I I looked at the congregation this morning. and I just have to say to you, there has been so much pain in this congregation. So many walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Others who are very ill right now. And I just looked and I thought, there's scarcely a single family that is untouched by the grief. Either it's a family member or a dear friend. We've lost so many in such a short period of time. And death has been no respecter of persons. A teenager in the last week, but... But in the weeks before that, somebody in their 20s, somebody in their 30s, somebody in their 40s, people in their 70s, in their 90s. We've lost so, so many of our good people. We calculated today, Larry Bertrand and I, nine nine deaths associated with our congregation in a period of less than three weeks. I don't ever in my 30 years of being a pastor, I'm coming up my 30th anniversary in August of being a pastor, I don't ever remember a period of time like that. And I say that to say to you, we must be especially attentive to the needs of people around us. There's so many people who are suffering. I don't know any church anywhere that does it better. I love your Sunday school classes. I love the way you love each other. I would just be your pastor tonight and say to you, love on each other. Be kind to each other. Everybody's having a hard time. And in these difficult days, what we don't want to be is those who are aloof, those who act as though we're unaware. But it's worse than that. They're not only aloof, but they look down on Israel. And they, they, they wait until Israel is marched off, and then they go back and steal the things that are left over. And if that's not enough, then they find some of the Israelites who are fleeing for their lives, and they kill them. And the others that survive, they turn into the enemy, as if to say, we want you to suffer. And I don't understand that kind of perspective, but it comes surely for the Edomites. It came from a deep, a deeply rooted self-centeredness. And if we're not careful, we're susceptible to us because it's a virus in our culture. We're very susceptible to this. A.W. Tozer wrote, this helped me today. I hope it helps you. He said, the labor of self-love is a heavy one indeed. Think for yourself whether much of your sorrow has not arisen from someone speaking slightingly of you. As long as you set yourself up 
as a little God to which you must be loyal, there will be those who will delight to offer affront to your idol. How then can you hope to have inward peace? The heart's fierce effort to protect itself from every slight, to shield its touchy honor from the bad opinion of friend and enemy, will never let your mind have rest. Here's the problem when we live self-centered lives. That's idolatry. And the idolatry is then we spend our lives trying to defend ourselves. And the more we do it, the more people will look down on us for it. And the more they'll say bad things about us. And the more that will hurt our feelings. And we will not have any rest at all. God has established this immutable principle in the universe. Whatever we sow, we will reap. It's inevitable. And John Stott has written that every stage of our Christian development, in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, Pride is our greatest enemy, and humility is our greatest friend. God will humble the proud, but God will exalt the humble on the day of the Lord. Look in verses 15 to 21 and hear what he says. What if God's judgment is that we get what we give to others? What if we really do reap what we sow? Is that good news for you? Is that bad news for you? Listen to what God says in verses 15 and following. He says, the day of the Lord, that's the day of judgment is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you sow, you will reap. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They'll drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau will be stubble. And they will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors. From the house of Esau, the Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau. People from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. And they will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead. And this company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in the Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. Do you hear what he says? If we exalt ourselves against God, we can expect to be humbled. But the promise is that as God brings judgment on Esau, God will also bring deliverance to His people. Mount Zion represents the place of worship, the place where God will be exalted. Really, this took place some 70 years after the captivity. There came a return from the exile, and we remember those who came back into the land. We studied already, didn't we, the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, and they came back into the land, and God's people received it again And the foreigners will not ultimately control the place of worship, but Jacob will inherit it again. And there will be judgment upon Edom, upon Esau. And this was fulfilled. Edom was first invaded in the next century by the Arabs. In Jesus' day, it was ruled by the Nabataeans. When Herod decided, one of the descendants of Herod, uh, there are a number of Herods in the New Testament, but when Herod decided to uh, divorce from his wife who was the daughter, remember this, of the Nabataean king who ruled in Petra, what we would call Petra, or Selah it was called at that time. It means the rock. It's a rocky place. When he did that, then the Nabataeans came in 36 AD and attacked Herod. 
as well. That is to say, God's word will be fulfilled. And here's the promise that you and I can hold on to in verses 17 through 21. God says, my people will be cared for and the day will come when Mount Zion is exalted and God will rule and the kingdom will be the Lord's. This should give us a deep sense of humility. It means you and I are not the king. We're not in charge. That position is already taken. But it also means that God, who is a just judge, will ultimately rule. This friend of mine, Ray Franklin, who I ran into up in Arkansas this week, his dad was my pastor. He licensed me to ministry up in Montana. And I ran into his son in Arkansas, who had been a missionary in Japan. Just shows you our God has the whole world in his hands. His father mentored me. It's likely that his, the son, Ray Franklin, uh, will mentor my son up in Arkansas. So there's great, uh, great grace in the, in the Heavenly Father. But he told me, he said, you know, pray for Japan in these days. He was a missionary there for some 25 years. And he said, pray for the people of Japan because it's hard for them to receive help. They're such a successful nation that they've become self-sufficient. And it's hard for them to receive help from the outside. He said back during the earthquake and tsunami in 95, the American military had great relief to offer them on the boats. But if the military had brought it in, the Japanese would not have received it. Finally, it was Southern Baptist missionaries who distributed the goods from off the ships because it would have felt like an invasion if the troops had come on shore. And so... And so he said, pray that through the missionaries there will be help and that they'll receive that help and that as they receive the physical help, they'll receive spiritual help. Now, isn't that a different perspective than Cappy Poindexter's? (laughs) They brought it on themselves. Here's a Christian point of view. Let's pray for the people of Japan that God might work this terrible event, which ultimately, I see we live in a fallen world where Satan rejoices in natural tragedies and illnesses and, and he works through those things, but, but God is greater still and God is working all things together for good. And what if out of this natural catastrophe there came a greater openness to the gospel in Japan and our missionaries who were caring for physical needs had the chance to minister to spiritual needs? Wouldn't that be a good thing that God could do out of the terrible tragedy of earthquake and tsunami. And if you and I look and see other people suffering, our hearts should be broken by that. Our president, Abraham Lincoln, years ago, Abraham Lincoln said, I feel sorry for the man who does not feel the whip when it is laid on another man's back. And if there is one characteristic of the people of God, it is that we must be compassionate. Jesus saw the multitudes, and what did He see? They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looked at them and he was the good shepherd and he laid down his life for them. In Luke chapter 13, a group tells Jesus about the Galileans. Remember that? Who were murdered by Pilate and their blood was mingled with the blood of the sacrifices. And Jesus said, do you think that it's because they were greater sinners than you that they lost their lives? No, unless you all repent, you will all likewise die. He goes on to say um, about um, another group of people in that same period of time, a tower of Siloam. Remember that? Fell on 18 people and killed them. And Jesus said, do you think they were worse? The truth is, judgment is uh, everywhere in our world. And any one of us is susceptible to judgment. And when I rode down into Petra and I saw those cliffs and those of you who were there remember, we went up to this magnificent treasury. And of course, in the movie, um, Indiana Jones went into that. And of course, he finds the Holy Grail and all these kinds of things. And you just know this tunnel goes on for miles and miles and miles. 
I was absolutely underwhelmed when I walked inside. Here's this magnificent sandstone structure carved out of the stone with 50-foot-tall columns. And inside, when you walk inside that magnificent structure, it is about the size of the average living room in one of our homes. There's no tunnel. It goes nowhere. It looks really great. But there's not really very much there. In West Texas, they describe people like that as tall hat, no cattle. (laughs) You know, they look good, but there's not really much there. And what I want you to see is Jesus says, Jesus says in his day about the Pharisees, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You make every effort to look magnificent outwardly, but inwardly you're filled with dead man's bones, with with necrosis, and I want you to hear this statement. What he's saying to these Edomites is, you have exalted yourself on these cliffs. You've mistaken your topography for your importance. But the truth is, God is greater still. And no matter how big you are in your own eyes, from God's point of view, you're not that big after all. And God says, on the day of the Lord, I will bring judgment. I don't know if that's good news or bad news for you, but I remember what what Frederick Buechner said, he said at some unforeseeable time in the future, God will ring down the final curtain on history. There will be a day in which all our days and all the judgments upon us and all our judgments upon each other will themselves be judged. And the judge will be Christ. In other words... The one who judges us most finally will be the one who loves us most fully. So can I ask you tonight, who are you? God is a friend to His friends. Are you God's friend? Or would you be one of those who is called God's enemy? James chapter 4, verse 4, what does it say? Those who love the world are enemies of God. If you're a friend of the world, if the world is... Completely your home. He says that's being an enemy of God. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 and 27 say, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that, it sounds a lot like this, that will consume the enemies of God. God's enemies, we learn in this passage, are those who stand against the cause of Christ. And whatever you do, you don't want to be an enemy of God. But here's the good news of the gospel. In Romans chapter 5, it says while we were enemies of God, while we were literally ekthroi in Greek, we were haters of God. The good news of the gospel is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So here's the call from Obadiah tonight. If you're an enemy of God, by all means, be reconciled to God because God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I implore you with the Apostle Paul, with Obadiah, be reconciled to God. If there is any distance between your soul and the Lord, now is the time for you to take one step toward God and discover that He comes all the way to you. Let's pray. Father, thank You. For the promise that you who know us best, you who will judge us, are the one who loves us most. We thank you for the New Testament perspective on Obadiah to understand, Lord, that in the day of the Lord, 
Not only will you be exalted, not only will every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but through the blood of your own Son, we find forgiveness. And even though, Father, we sometimes act like enemies of God, on the cross you found a way to bridge the chasm of sin so that we might be reconciled to you. God, help us to see our own hearts tonight, to know if there is any wicked way within us. Deliver us from sin and draw us to Yourself that we might be trophies of Your grace in this week and not enemies of God. And Father, when we see somebody suffering, help us to be that one, that good Samaritan who reaches out across the boundaries that the world has created to extend the love of Christ. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I invite you tonight to come and receive Christ as your Savior and Lord? This is what we mean by being reconciled to God. We all have sinned and Christ died for our sins. And and we invite Him into our lives to be the Lord of our lives. And we become followers of Christ. We follow Him in scriptural baptism by immersion as a sign of our commitment to Christ. We welcome you to do that tonight. Or come tonight and say, I am a follower of Christ and God is leading me to be a part of this community of joy. As God leads you, we welcome you. Let's stand together as we sing. I'll meet you here at the front. Come right now as God leads you.